Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons Podcast. I'm his son, Matthew, and we have been splitting up the sermons every other week at our house church that my wife and I host on our farm. If you're interested in joining us, check out wrightfarmhousechurch.com. Enjoy today's lesson. So I've told a couple of funny stories in the past about how when my kids, when our kids were a little younger, not too long ago, uh, we, we might have caught them hiding some candy under their pillows that they were secretly enjoying at night uh, after they were supposed to be sleeping, right? Uh, and the funny part is that, is that they would have gotten into a little trouble. They would have gotten into a little trouble for sneaking the candy. And it wouldn't have been that bad, I don't think. But they got into a huge amount of trouble if they decided to instead tell a fib about whether they were sneaking candy into their beds or not. That's where they got into a lot of trouble. So starting from the oldest to down to the youngest, they saw how different, they got to witness how different the punishment was from the older siblings as, as this happened. Um, and, and we noticed that the, the, the disobediences happened less and less because they got to see the examples of what happened to the older siblings, I think. Uh, as, as the, so the disobediences slowly started to disappear uh, through our examples, or maybe Maryland's just perfect, I don't know. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> No one, has to, no one has to teach us to lie, right? We, we see what we want. We, 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 oh, here's a, here's a picture of kids sneaking candy. I forgot about that. We, we see what we want. We, we justify the evil that we desire, and we call it, we call it good. We take the candy, and all too often, we don't give a second thought about the consequences until it's really, until it's too late. The original story of human sin actually follows this same pattern in Genesis chapter 3. Eve sees the fruit that God told her not to eat, as she calls the evil good, and then she takes it. And we've seen this same story happen over and over in various ways all throughout our lives, throughout the Bible, and then, and then into our lives as well. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we, we read a similar story to this as well. Starting in verse 2, it says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof, of a, uh, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So here the Hebrew word, Jonah studies Hebrew. I thought this would be interesting for him. The Hebrew word used here for beautiful is pronounced tovat, which, which actually has its root in the word good. It's good. And there is a thick irony here in the usage of this word because David saw the good in her beauty, but he is about to redefine good and evil. David sends uh, someone to find out about her, and a man comes back, and, and he says this in verse 3, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then David sent messengers to take her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying 
herself from her monthly uncleanness. So that one sentence at the end is almost always overlooked. But it is actually very important, this sentence is. This sentence is telling us that Bathsheba is not on the roof bathing seductively to try and get David's attention, or really any other man for that matter. Bathsheba was doing a ritual cleansing that was part of their law and a part of their custom. So what's interesting to note, and you may never have thought about it this way, but in all reality, she probably actually had her clothes on during this ritual cleansing. So ironically, David is probably standing on his roof lusting after her during a religious ceremony. This would be our equivalent of lusting after someone while you were watching them get baptized. That would be our equivalent to think about it that way. The story continues in verse 4. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So, uh, as you may know, David, David here, he starts plotting immediately to try and cover up his wrongdoing. He brings her husband, Uriah, back from the military front, and he tries to get Uriah to spend the night with her so that it would appear that the pregnancy was from Uriah. But Uriah is so faultless that he says, there's no way I would do this while my men are still out. They're still out there in the battlefield fighting. Uriah says, I would never do that. David uh, fails so in, in so doing this in his first attempt to cover up his sin. So he has Uriah sent to the front and killed in battle by the enemy. He commits murder by proxy. Our, our government, if you think about this, you guys know this, our government is guilty of this sin quite often. Poor baby. Yeah, you're fine. So... Our government is guilty of this proxy sin quite often. Our leaders will go to war by proxy by funding another nation's war coffers with weapons and money and intelligence uh, in order to complete evil atrocities against people without directly pulling the triggers themselves. And this is what David was doing here. It's nothing new to this world. We've been killing people by proxy for thousands of years to try and hide our personal evils. And in this story, we see the story of Adam and Eve repeated. They saw the fruit. Adam and Eve saw the fruit. They called the evil they desired good, and they took it. Likewise here, David sees Bathsheba, and he makes the evil that he desires good in his mind. So he takes her for himself. And just like Adam and Eve's first sin, this is really the turning point in David's life. As, as Walter Brueggemann would put it, for David and Israel, we are at a moment of no return. Innocence is never to be retrieved now. From now on, the life of David is marked. So what here is the mark of David? Well, there are a lot of marks we could say it was the mark of selfish power. David uses his God-given authority as king to take what isn't his. He sexually abuses a woman, and then he takes her husband's life in murder. Another mark on David is the mark of unruly human desire. 
King David isn't even the master of his own desires anymore. He has been mastered by his own desires. Another mark on David is the mark of redefinition. Good is evil in in David's sight, and evil has now become good. David has become the arbiter. He has become the mediator. He has become the judge of his own moral reality. And if we look in the mirror, if we ourselves look in the mirror, can't we see ourselves in this story too? We may not have done the exact things that that David did here, but every time we sin, we are mimicking the exact same marks that David had on his heart. Have we ever used our power in whatever capacity that that was to take something that wasn't ours? Uh, Maybe it was to take credit for something that wasn't ours or money that wasn't ours or use someone for our own fleshly gratifications? Have we ever been mastered by our own desires? Have we ever found ourselves uh, swept up into the same sin that we said we would just never do again? And, and then we get swept back into it and we make excuses like, like we, didn't, we didn't choose to do it, uh, almost like we were almost forced to do it, back into the lust, back into the addiction, back into the cutting words, back into the greed, back into the lies, back into the gossiping, back into worrying that Jesus says, don't do that. Don't worry. Back into those sins. They're all the same. Jesus says, don't do that. Have we ever redefined good and evil in our lives? Have we ever justified doing the wrong thing because we felt someone else deserved it? Or it was it was a complex situation? Or or Maybe we did it because everyone else was doing it. Um, and I know that every one of us, every one of us has fallen into this trap of redefining good and evil because we all have an inheritance from Adam and from Eve and from David. We've all inherited the same feature that every other living human has, except for Jesus, a broken and sinful nature. We've all got this internal predilection to predilection, sorry, to rebel against God, to cast off his rule and, and his authority in our life, and to try and rule for ourselves instead. And in this dark story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the narrator is making a really bold claim. He's asking us to look at the world around you. Do you see the violence? Do you see the fear? Do you see the sexual abuse? Do you see the lies? Do you see the cover-ups? All of these things, they spring from the same root problem, our sinful nature. This world can't be fixed. And more importantly, you, we cannot be at peace unless that problem, that sinful nature problem is finally dealt with. But how can we deal, how can we deal with this problem? How can we do it? Because the truth is that what we do in secret is never really in the dark. The last few words in this chapter are ominous words, and they are trying to draw our attention to the fact that David isn't the only one now that sees. David isn't the only one that has his eyes opened. This is the last verse. In verse 27, it says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God hates sin. He he watches and sees everything that David does to Bathsheba. He, he saw everything that David did to Uriah, and he watches it with anger. 
God is not less pleased by us when we've been mastered by our desires as well. And this is a warning against redefining good and evil for ourselves. And we might say, we might say, we we haven't done anything nearly as bad as David, like what he did in this chapter. But the fact is, sin is sin, and it is all displeasing to God. The terrible problem that God himself actually has to face is that he now has to destroy David. In order to in order for God to be good and for God to be just, he has to do something about this problem. And yet God has promised himself to David. God has promised to rescue David and to be faithful to David. God has promised God has promised himself to us too. And to be faithful to us in his love. So, how in the world can God be good and faithful and just? and perfect, and not destroy David, and not destroy us? How can God be faithful and loving and follow through on his promises, and yet simultaneously serve justice, do the right thing, and set things right? Well, he can only do this for David, and and he can only do this for us through a perfect king. If you haven't caught on yet in my lesson series is... (laughs) Set number 17 here. This is why Jesus took our just punishment. He took our punishment that we deserved for our sins, and he did it on the cross so that God could justify, so that God could justly punish sin, so that God could be just in the end. But Jesus doesn't just stop right there. He invites the world, this is what's amazing, he invites the world to turn away from those sins and to instead give allegiance and dedication and loyalty to him. Without our clothing of Jesus, God's wrath still has to be applied because justice has been promised and God will fulfill his promise. He is inviting the world to take off our crowns of self-rule and to step aside from this mess that we created. Instead, he wants everyone to come under his love and, and his justice and, and his mercy. First Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 3. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony that was given at just the right time. No one has been excluded from the promise of his justice, which is either wrath and separation or eternal heaven at his feet. And and thank God Christians are under the same promise that David was. To be seated at the Lord's table forever because our sins were justified by the perfect king to come in Jesus. And if we're honest with God, we can tell him that we have all rebelled and have tried to become our own kings and our own queens of our own lives. We've turned God's world upside down, and now we're in a situation that we cannot escape on our own. We are, we are under the just condemnation of the living God. But Jesus came, and he rescued us. Paul said in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Paul says that our sin was judged in his flesh so that we can turn from that sin, give our allegiance to Jesus, and live for his kingdom here on earth. This is why Paul writes here, in, in to, he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.15, And he died for all, that those who, might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So here's my challenge for us this week. Every time that we are distracted, and it is easy these days to be distracted, right? By our worries, by something, a news article that is trying to sway our emotions one way or another. Uh, Some event that we have no control over. Let's instead turn our focus on a celebration that we have, okay? That Jesus, this is the celebration, Jesus, the perfect king, delivered us from the wrath that God has promised, and he took it upon himself. That that should give us incredible joy if we can grasp even a small amount of what that means to us. Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. God bless you and have a wonderful week.